Genesis chapter 43 this evening, as we continue to look at the life of Joseph and his family. Let's read the first 14 verses. Now the famine was severe in the land. It came to pass when they had eaten up the grain which they had brought from Egypt, that their father said to them, Go back, buy us a little food. But Judah spoke to him, saying, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And Israel said, Why do you deal so wrongfully with me as to tell the man whether you had still another brother? But they said, The man asked us pointedly about ourselves and our family, saying, Is your father still alive? Have you another brother? And we told him according to these words, Could we possibly have known that he would say, Bring your brother down? Then Judah said to Israel, his father, Send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I myself will be surety for him, from my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. For if we had not lingered, surely by now he would have returned this second time. And their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best fruits of the land in your vessels and carry down a present for the man, a little balm and little honey, spices and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take your brother also and arise, go back to the man. And may God Almighty give you mercy before the man that he may release your brother and Benjamin. If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. In Enterprise, Alabama, they had some hard times in the early 1900s, principally due to the boll weevil coming along in 1910. Cotton was the main industry at the time, but due to the activities of the boll weevil, their cotton-producing industry was pretty much wiped out as a result. For example, in 1914, they produced 38,000 bales of cotton, but by 1917 they were down to just 7,000 bales of cotton, and the whole town and the economy was beginning to suffer. So what to do? Well, resourceful people that they were, they began to look at other possibilities. Some turned to peanut farming, others turned to corn, others turned to hay and to livestock. So the result was within a few years that that place that had one time been based entirely around just one crop now began to recover and to prosper because it had been forced by the boll weevil to change and to diversify to many crops. And so what seemed like a pest actually became to them a blessing in disguise. In fact, there used to be a statue in the town of Alabama of a woman in flowing robes holding a fountain. Well, what the people did in 1949, they took down the fountain and instead in its place they put an iron 17-pound football-sized bowl weevil replica to commemorate the good that that insect had inadvertently done for their community. They ended up being grateful for the hardship that had been done to them and for them. And it's the same kind of thing that we see here with Jacob and his family. This famine and all the associated pressures that he is experiencing, as a result, at first it seems to be entirely negative. That's how Jacob sees it. All these things are against me, 
he cries as he surveys the ruined landscape of his life. And yet, strangely enough, in the mysterious providence of God, as we go through the account, we see that all of these things are actually working together for his good. That's the theme that we see coming through in these verses. The pressures and difficulties working for good in Jacob's life and in the lives of some of his other sons as well. We see the Lord providentially here bringing certain factors, certain pressures to bear upon them. The effect at first seems negative, and yet as we go through, we see a number of positive spiritual results in their lives. Behind a frowning providence, God hides a smiling face. And it's something we want to see here in these verses. We're going to look at the verses we've read, 1 through 14 this evening. We're looking here at Jacob's change of heart. And we've got two main headings. We're going to consider the factors at work and the fruit they produce. So let's think about the factors at work behind Jacob's change of heart. Let's go firstly to verse 1. The famine was severe in the land, and it came to pass when they had eaten up the grain which they had brought from Egypt, that their father said to them, Go back and buy us a little food. Let's just remind ourselves of the scene here. Jacob's ten sons, because of the famine in Canaan, they went down to Egypt to buy grain, only to find when they got there that they came face to face with Joseph. They, they don't recognize him, of course. It's been 20 years since they last saw him, and here he is. He bears all the appearance of Egyptian nobility, so they don't recognize him. But he recognizes them, but he keeps it that way. He keeps it hidden from them by speaking roughly to them, and he accuses them of being spies and has them thrown into a dungeon until eventually he sends them back with grain. But, this is the kicker here, he keeps back Simeon. Why? Because he wants to see Benjamin, their younger brother. That's the deal. I keep Simeon, you come back with Benjamin. Hmm. So the brothers then head back and they have to try to explain all of this to their father. His reaction, he's overwhelmed with sorrow. First Joseph and now Benjamin. All these things are against me, he says. He's full of remorse. But also he's resolved as well not to lose Benjamin. So that when Reuben steps forward at the end of chapter 42 and makes an offer, kill my two sons if I don't bring him back, Jacob's not having it. No way, Jose. No, no way, Reuben. He's lost Joseph. Uh, he isn't going to lose Benjamin as well. He says, if any calamity should befall him along the way in which you go, then you would bring down my grey hair with sorrow to the grave. So that's where it finished up. There's a kind of a, an impasse here. There's a, there's a deadlock. There's tension in the house until, as we mentioned in the beginning, the Lord begins to apply certain pressures to Jacob and to his situation. The first is the famine, of course. The famine was severe in the land, and it came to pass when he'd eaten up the grain which they brought, their father said to them, go back. Buy us a little food. So all the grain they got from their first trip to Egypt had gone now. The famine was severe, it says. That word severe, it's also the same word for glory. It's a word which means weight. It means heavy. So this was severe. It was heavy. It was a crushing famine. And so now there's nothing for it but to go. They have to go because, well, they're not exempt from the famine. They have to suffer this the same as everyone else. God's people don't get an exemption, do they, when troubles hit a nation? 
Christian people don't get an immunity waiver when a famine comes. They have to suffer the same as everyone else. So this gives the lie, doesn't it? It's the prosperity gospel teaching that if you're a Christian and you just have enough faith, then all of your problems will go away. Well, no. Uh, If you're a Christian, you don't get a pass. In a situation like if if you're a Christian, you don't get airlifted out from the troubles. You get them the same as everyone else. When COVID first hit a few years back... Christians got it the same as everybody else did. Some Christians died from it too. When the economy goes into downturn, Christians aren't exempt. Yes, God provides, of course, but Christians can still find themselves suffering the consequences of that too. And that's what we see here. Jacob and his sons were subject to the same famine as the rest of the people were. So that's one factor at work here. But then also there's another one that Jacob can't control. And that's the other people in this situation influencing his decision. Verse 3, but Judah spoke to him saying, the man solemnly warned us saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. So Jacob, he had been resolved, determined that Benjamin wouldn't go with them. And so he suggests that they slip down to Egypt without Benjamin and buy a little food. The implication seems to be if only they ask for a little food, he won't mind that they didn't bring Benjamin with them. But Judah says here, Dad, Dad, you don't understand. He he told us we won't see his face unless we bring Benjamin with us. So here's another factor then bearing down on Jacob. It's the demands of this mysterious Egyptian ruler. It's an outside pressure. It was something that was beyond any of their control. As the brothers are trying to explain here to Jacob, uh, when Jacob complains about the fact that they've told him about Benjamin in the first place they said but the man asked us pointedly about ourselves and our family saying is your father still alive have you another brother so they're protesting was him he brought it up how could we possibly have known that he would say bring your brother down I mean who'd have thought that somebody like that would ask us something like that and so again you see this is another external factor This is another external pressure acting upon Jacob. He can't control this. It's external to him and his sons. All of these things were beyond their control. The famine, the response of the Egyptian ruler, this request that he makes of them, it's all beyond their control. And Jacob doesn't like this. He complains about this and he's doing his best here to fight against this. But at the end of the day, that's the situation that he's in. Uh, Montgomery Boyce in his commentary on Genesis he says this he says it did not matter in the slightest how this situation had come about these were the circumstances and they had to be dealt with as they were and sometimes we can find ourselves in a place like that can you identify with that uh, as you look at your life do you feel a bit like Jacob here how, how did I get here how, how did I find myself in a situation like this. Why is my situation like this? I wish I could change this. I wish I could do something about this, but I'm, I'm trapped. All of these external factors have boxed me into this situation I'm in right now. Oftentimes we can find ourselves in a place like that, having a conversation in our own heads like that, frustrated at the situation we're in and perplexed and baffled by all the external factors that seem to have conspired to to put us in that situation we're in. 
And so what do you do there? How do you handle that? Well, we need to remember what we were saying last time. We need to remember that Romans 8.28 principle that applies to every aspect of the situation we're in, that God is sovereign and he's all wise. And in his all wise providence, it's he himself who by his own hand has brought all of these external pressures to bear upon us for a very important reason, a, a refining purifying sanctifying reason we had opportunity to go to hawaii last year and while we were there we went to pearl harbor and there are actually some pearl sellers uh, operating there and it's quite interesting you can see the pearls and you can read information about how the, the pearls actually get produced and it is it's fascinating because each pearl is formed by the oyster's internal response to a wound caused by an irritant such as sand getting in there and what happens is the, the sort of the resources of re- repair rush to that injured area, and the final result of that is that a pearl is produced. So all the pressure, all that friction you see, the result is it produces a beautiful pearl. And it's similar to the work the Lord is doing in the lives of his people. Like Jacob here, he's subject to all kinds of pressures and challenges, none of which he control, but the Lord can. And he's in control of all of these things, and he uses them to bring about this sanctifying, spiritually beautifying process in our lives. And so we need to hang on to that. We need to hold on to that. We need to to calm our hearts by remembering that. Calvin, uh, he makes this comment here. He says, let us learn patient endurance. Should the Lord compel us by pressure of circumstance to do many things contrary to the inclination of our own minds? So learn to endure, he's saying. The situation that uh, you'd rather not be in or a relationship that you really wish was different. Uh, Learn patient endurance. Calvin says, submit to the Lord in that. Seek his help in that and remind yourself he has a glorious purpose in it all. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. So that brings us then to a a second thought this evening. We're looking here at Jacob's change of heart. So looking at chapters 43, uh, verses 1 through 13. The factors at work, that's our first heading. Now let's secondly consider the fruit it produces. We want to look at this change that takes place in Jacob, but not just Jacob. There's actually a change in Judah as well. I don't know if you noticed that, the way that Judah suddenly steps forward here. It's similar to the way that Reuben had done at the end of the previous chapter, where Reuben offers the lives of his own two sons if Benjamin doesn't come back. And we see here Judah, he's making an offer as well. He says, send the lad with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I myself will be surety for him. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. And so Judah's offering himself as a surety for Benjamin, as a a sort of a guarantee of his return. This is a very different man. Isn't it? To the Judah of chapter 38. And that shameful, sordid scene with Tamar. This is a very different Judah now. Gone seems to be the the self-centered, self-seeking adulterer of chapter 38. He's changing. And later on in chapter 44, we see that he's the one leading the plea for Benjamin, for his freedom, after Benjamin has been accused of taking Joseph's cup. Judah, you see, is changing. We're looking at the way these... External factors are changing, Jacob and his sons. 
One commentator says this about Judah. For the first time in his life, he's made someone else's happiness more important than his own. God was at work changing Judah even before he made the trip back to Egypt. And so there's a change being wrought in him. But perhaps the greatest change of all is taking place in Jacob. Even his name. I don't know if you noticed that there. He's called Jacob in the previous chapter. Now he's referred to as Israel again. That was his new name, wasn't it? That was his covenant name that was given to him at Jabbok in Genesis 32. But unlike Abraham, who once he becomes Abraham, is always referred to as Abraham after that, it's not the same with Jacob. Now, Jacob's name uh, gets changed at Jabbok, but it's not used that much after that. Probably because there's still much of the old Jacob left in him, uh, still complaining, self-centered, self-seeking, and so on. Here, however, at this point in the story, we see Jacob being referred to as Israel again. Israel meaning prince with or one who has been conquered by God. Why is that? What's the reason for this change? It could be, it seems to be now this renewed trust, renewed confidence in God that he has. And you see that coming through in the instructions he gives to his sons now. He changes his mind and gives them three instructions. Firstly, take a present to the man in verse 11. Take some of the best fruits of the land in your vessels and carry down a present for the man. A little balm, a little honey, spices and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Uh, so he's to take, uh, they're to take a gift. This would have been protocol in those days if you were going to see somebody of high nobility uh, like that. A high official of some sort, you'd be expected to bring some sort of a gift with you. It was respect, it was a sign of honour as well. Especially, think about it, in the middle of a famine when even basic necessities are in short supply, to bring something like this would show great honour to the person they were going to see. Secondly, he says, take double the money as well, verse 12. So this is both the money they found in the sack that Joseph had put there. They're taking that back to show that they are honest men. And also additional money to buy more grain. And then thirdly, most painful of all for Jacob, take Benjamin. He says, verse 13, just as that Egyptian ruler had requested, he complies with the man's request. He concedes to this. But not only that, he doesn't stop there. It's significant what he says in verse 14, which is basically, we must trust God. Trust God. Uh, We have a frame on our kitchen wall at home. It's got some sort of, you know, household rules. It's a bit kind of uh, lighthearted. But in the middle, it says, trust God. And uh, I see it there every day as I walk through the kitchen. I like to see it there because I need that. I need that reminder. I can be very Jacob-like with doubts and fears and worrying how this is going to work out. Is that going to work out? When what we all need to do, as Jacob does here, is we need to trust God. Trust God. That's what Jacob, Israel, does here. And we can see this in the blessing, the benediction, the way he commits them here to the Lord. He says, may God Almighty give you mercy before the man. God Almighty, he says in the original, that's El Shaddai. El means the, uh, it's the mighty one, the powerful one. Shaddai means mountain. That's what he is. He's vast. He's supreme. He towers over all. El Shaddai. It's very significant that he should use that name here. Because this is the same name by which God had come to his grandfather Abraham in Genesis 17. Verse 1, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai, 
Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. And it was at that point that God promised to give him a seed, which is why it's so significant that he uses that name now at this particular point. Because what's Jacob about to do? He's about to send all his seed, all his sons, every single son down to Egypt with the possibility, of course, that none of them might return. And that covenant line might well be snuffed out just like that. There'll be no more children for him at his age. So he's putting all his eggs into one basket, you might say. And that's why he calls upon the name of El Shaddai, God Almighty, asking that he might be gracious and give you mercy before the man that he may release your brother and Benjamin. Why does he say that? Because he knows, doesn't he? He knows that the king's heart, even an Egyptian's king's heart, is in the hands of the Lord. And it's the Lord who turns it whatever way he will, like a, a water course. And so he prays here and he asks for God's blessing. This is faith. His faith here. There's also trust and submission as well. In verse 14, if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. So he's taking a risk here. He, he, he knows that sending all of his sons down there like that. Taking a risk with the seed, you might say. But of course, Abraham did the same thing, didn't he? When it seemed to make no sense, when it seemed to be a crazy thing to do, to hold that knife over his son Isaac. Jacob, in a way, is doing a similar thing here. He's risking it all in sending his sons to Egypt, not knowing what will happen. Uh, he may not know for many weeks and months how it's all turned out. There's no email, no texts. There'll be no selfies from the sons down there in uh, the palace, he may have to wait a long time until he finds out what's happened here. But he does. He places a complete trust in God. If I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. It's a bit like Esther going in before the king in Esther chapter 4. And she says, if I perish, I perish. It's that willingness to accept from the Lord and from his hand whatever he decides, submitting to his sovereign will for my life, however it may play out. That's a lesson for us. We can learn from Jacob here. Just to quote uh, Montgomery Boyce again, he says this, If you are fighting against the circumstances God has brought into your life, learn that it is useless to wrestle against the God of Jabbok. Allow yourself to be mastered by God and commit your way to him. Praise him, knowing that he will be with you and will bless you to the very end. Leave it to him. I have a book at home by a fellow called Don McClure. He was a Presbyterian missionary in Ethiopia. He was there for many years, and he's written a couple of books about his experiences over there. And there was one occasion when uh, some converted Ethiopian tribesmen came to see him. He had some training in medicine, and uh, one of the sons of this tribesman had been bitten by a, a poisonous puff adder. And they'd come to see Don McClure for help. And uh, the, the man was very calm, the father of the boy. And uh, as McClure was uh, tending to the son and giving him the right treatment that he needed, McClure, sort of t- tongue-in-cheek, said to him, why didn't you kill a sheep and pour sheep's blood on him like you used to do? And the man said, now we only believe in the blood of Jesus. Still very calm. If the medicine does not help him, our prayers will. But if he dies... Our lives in God's hands. Translation, the Lord will do what he thinks right and will leave it with him. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Abraham said that. That's what Jacob here is really saying too. 
And that's all you need to do, Christian friend, here this evening, with all your doubts, with all your fears, all your uncertainties right now, learn to leave them in the hands of God. Whate'er my God ordains is right, his holy will abideth. I will be still, whate'er he does, and follow where he guideth.